Thank you for tuning in to the Voice of the Victim podcast. We discuss a lot of sad and potentially triggering things on this show. We try to be as sensitive and cautious as possible, but if you are sensitive to things involving abuse and may be triggered, please think twice before listening to our show. Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast. My name is Ryan. And I'm Rosie. How are you doing, Rosie? Good. We just got rid of the elliptical machine. Yeah, they're actually still in our driveway loading their car. I hope they can fit it. We have been packing all day, pretty much, getting ready to go. Yeah. It's been stressful, and it's been kind of fun. Yeah. Well, I thought it was fun. We got a few really big items out of our basement, Mm -hmm. cleaned out my entire closet, and I did a few shops this morning. So, so far it's been a good day. Besides the fact that it's literally snowstorming right now. It's been storming, sunning, storming, and sunning. It's so frustrating. But the people are finally pulling out of our driveway. It looks like they got it in. (laughs) So before we start, we want to thank our new patrons, Amber. That's A-N-B-I-R, so with an N, and Candice. So thank you both so much. We really appreciate your support. This week's five-star review is short and sweet. So Rosie, you want to read that? Yeah. It's titled, love it, five stars. Y'all grew on me. I hope you continue to do this. We do too. Thank you, Sam. I am zero triple three. Sounds like we're going the right direction there. So that's good. Thank you, Sam. I am. So by now, you've probably all heard of the popular Netflix show Tiger King. (laughs) It's just crazy popular right now because so many people are stuck at home. Well, before we get into this, I should say, spoiler alert. If you haven't watched Tiger King yet, we don't want to spoil anything for you. But if you don't care, then feel free to continue. So there was one particular episode that really stood out to me because a person went missing and the whole thing really seemed to be barely investigated and then just swept under the rug. Don't you feel that way, Rosie? Yeah, totally. So tonight's episode is a mysterious missing persons case based on Jack Donald Lewis, more commonly known as Don Lewis, who was last seen on August 18th, 1997. This was over 22 years ago that he went missing, so... Rosie, are you ready to jump into it? Oh, I am. Jack Donald Lewis was born on April 30th, 1938 in Dade City, Florida. He was raised by a single mother and had two other siblings. His mom worked as a seamstress and also baked fresh bread to sell to neighbors. She sounds delightful. Yeah, she does. It looks like his dad really wasn't in the picture, though. And his mom obviously had a lot on her plate, caring for three kids, trying to make a living. So Don started working from a young age, doing odd jobs around the neighborhood, trying to help out the family. Mm -hmm. So he worked as a farmhand and as a mechanic, like before he even graduated high school. Impressive. But his main steady job was as a bag boy at a grocery store. 
While he was working there, he saw a young girl named Gladys Cross, and he winked at her. <laughs> yeah, that and that just happened to light some sparks. <laughs> Sounds like when they met, he was 15 and she was 12. Again, this was in like 1952, and they actually kept dating. They started seeing each other, mm-hmm. and yeah, started going steady. Now, this is crazy, because two years after that, when he was 17 and she was 14, they got married. Wow. And Don did all this while he was still going to high school. And in 1955, he graduated from Pasco High School in Dade City. The same year Don graduated, he and Gladys had the first of their three daughters named Donna. Later, Linda and Gail came along. They also adopted a boy, but not much is known about him. When Don and Gladys got married, they were super broke, which obviously, if you're 14. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) But he got a job hauling rock and sand in his hometown of Dade City. Don was very frugal and continued to live as if he was broke. He was eventually able to save up enough to start buying dump trucks. He was able to accumulate five of them. In the early 60s, he started driving tankers for Tex... How do you say that? Texaco? Mm-hmm. and Red Wing Carriers in Tampa. Yeah, so this guy was a hustler. He did so many different things. He stayed really busy and continued to grow his bank account steadily and barely spent any of it because we mentioned he was frugal. And he even had a side gig of buying broken washing machines, hmm. fixing them up and selling them for a profit. So basically he flipped them. That's cool. Makes me think of the broken lawnmower we just gave away for free. <laughs> yeah, I wish I was more handy with that stuff. Yeah. Don put his skills as a mechanic to work. When he was older, he started flipping used cars and eventually started parting out old machinery and either repurposing them or selling the parts. Don also eventually got into the real estate business. He was a hard worker and found success, becoming a self-made multi-millionaire by 1981. He was only in his early 40s. Dang. 1981 would become a significant year in this family's life. So now that we have a grasp on who Don was, let's talk about Carol. Now, I'm sure a lot of you have heard of Carol Baskin. Mm -hmm. So who was Carol Baskin before she met Don Lewis? Well, Carol Baskin was born on June 6, 1961 to Vernon and Mary Stairs. So Don was 23 years old when she was born, just to fill in that context. (laughs) Very interesting. She was born on the Lackland Air Force Base in Bexar County, Texas. You know what's weird about that is that um, he had already been married for six years when she was born. That's like as long as we've been married, isn't it? Well, it'll be seven this year, but yeah. Well, pretty close. That's a long time, though. That's pretty crazy. She never had any siblings, but was still a very energetic child. She loved wild things and animals. She would take in stray cats and take care of them, (laughs) taking them on walks and feeding them. And when she was nine years old, she said she wanted to be a veterinarian and save cats. But when she heard that veterinarians sometimes need to put down animals, she decided that that was not for her. She wanted something different for herself when she was older than what she'd grown up in. She found her life boring and monotonous. Monotonous. (laughs) That's fine. 
She wanted excitement and adventure. So far, she sounds like you, Rosie. Well, I'm not, like, nuts, though. <laughs> well, she doesn't sound nuts at this point, does she? No. <laughs> <laughs> at this point. But um, her family wasn't very well off, and though they told her not to worry about finances, she didn't want to put any financial hardships on the family by doing extra schooling. So, I mean, she saw that they were struggling to get by and didn't want to make it worse. Hmm. In 1977, when Carol was 15 years old, she decided to run away from home with an employee from a local roller rink. Ooh. Yeah, I tried so hard to find more details on this situation, but I couldn't. I would really like to know more about who she ran away with and why, and if there was like a romantic thing there, or if it was just a friend. But she says that she wanted to go to work and take care of herself, and also that she was always looking for adventure. So, I mean, this makes sense. I wouldn't recommend leaving <laughs> home at 15. But, Good, I'm glad. <laughs> um, yeah, so far, I mean, she has a lot of the same traits you do, Rosie. Looking for adventure, yeah, but loving I'm not animals. running away with a roller rink kid. <laughs> True, <laughs> but you might have. Well, let's not get crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. After running away, Carol would hitchhike up the East Coast to Maine and then back down to Florida several times. She would sleep underneath parked cars at night because she felt this was the safest place for her because no one thinks to look for you there. So this was her way of hiding from predators. Because I was thinking, like, how's a 15-year-old girl living on the street? And back then, she was really pretty. Like, how is she living on the street and staying safe? But she would sleep under cars. So I guess whatever works for you. I guess the key is wake up before someone drives their car. I know. I was just thinking like, that. I would be Seems dangerous. way too panicked to fall asleep under a car. Yeah. But anyway, back to Carol. She, of course, had a pet cat. Oh, that's that makes sense. Yep. <laughs> She eventually settled in Tampa, Florida, and got a job working at a discount department store. Carol saved up enough to buy an orange Datsun pickup truck and started sleeping in the bed of the truck with her cat. <laughs> but during the days, the truck was the only place that she had to keep the cat. And it would obviously get too hot in there. Oh, yeah, I didn't even think of Florida. that. in Florida. Oh, like she didn't let the cat run around outside? Well. That's kind of mean. They came up with a solution, though. So her boss, Michael Murdoch, offered to let her keep the cat at his apartment so it wouldn't need to sit in a hot truck all day. One thing led to another, and Carol and Mike started dating. When she was 17, Carol and Mike got married. Not long after, she became pregnant, and they had a daughter on July 16, 1980, named Jamie Veronica Murdoch. So a lot just happened in that paragraph, but... Whatever works for you. <laughs> hey, you can keep your cat in my apartment. Boom, you're having a kid. I mean, taking care of someone's cat, I would imagine, is a way to person's heart. Uh, yes. Anyway, after the honeymoon phase wore off between Mike and Carol, things started to go downhill. Yeah. Mike became extremely possessive and would check on her odometer every day to make sure she wasn't cheating on him. Yikes. Carol felt like she needed an escape plan, so she started breeding cats to bring in some cash on the side. This was before Find My iPhone. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. 
This led to her eventually starting to take in injured bobcats to rehabilitate and release them. And this is when Carol discovered two different passions of hers. A love for big cats and a love for rescuing them. I mean, she already loved cats, but there's a significant difference between a house cat and a big cat. Mm -hmm. She loved the unpredictably wild and wicked nature of the big cats. Those are her words. She loved their wicked nature and wanted to help them. And another side point, I read that she also acquired some llamas to use in a lawn trimming business. I didn't know llamas were great landscapers, but you learn something new every day. Anyway, not long after she discovered these passions, she hit a huge roadblock on the path to pursuing her dream. According to Carol, her husband Mike had become abusive and would sometimes beat her when they got into arguments. One night, after a terrible argument, she decided she didn't want to put up with another beating that she knew was coming. So, she threw a potato at his head and ran out of the house barefoot. You can't make this stuff up. He chased her outside, but she weaved between houses and ducked low to hide. Eventually, he gave up and she was able to evade him. And she was only 19 years old at this point. But as Carol was walking down Nebraska Avenue in Tampa... She was approached by a man in a car with his window rolled down. Creepy. At this point, Carol was a beautiful young girl with blonde hair, blue eyes, and a big smile. When she was out and about, she would be approached by a lot of men hitting on her. So when this man pulled up and asked her if she was, quote, that woman on TV, offering her a ride, she just said, no thanks, and continued walking. Yeah. My first thought is that she had a lot of experience hitchhiking. So this guy must have come across as really creepy to say no. Yeah. Because obviously she needs a ride. But then again, she'd probably learned a lot in the two years that she was settled down with Mike. Obviously hitchhiking is dangerous. A few minutes later, after she declined the ride, the car approached again. He asked her to look at his passenger seat. When she saw it, there was a revolver handgun sitting on the seat. Okay. He Where told are you going her, with this? I know, right? <laughs> he told her that she could hold the gun on him the whole time she rode with him, and that he needed someone to talk to as badly as she needed a ride. So really this, weird way to yeah. go about it. <laughs> this piqued Carol's interest because, as we mentioned, she loved excitement and adventure instead of boring monotony. But I gotta say, for me, this made him feel even more weird, this offer. You know? This sounds like something you'd see on... Hanson versus Predator or To Catch a Predator, yeah. It does, indeed. But we all have our preferences. I'm just thinking, now I know he has a gun in his car. Now I really don't want to get in. Like, what if he has another gun? Mm-hmm. You, you know? would think that. <laughs> but anyway. When Carol heard this, she found it incredibly fascinating and decided to get in and hold the gun on him. He started driving and they talked a bit. He told her his name was Bob Martin. Then Carol says that he pulled the car over. Then he reached over and put his hands around her throat, telling her he could choke her to death if he wanted to. What? She didn't show any fear and just said, I know. Then he let her go and massaged her shoulders for a bit before getting back into the driver's seat. What a move. (laughs) I... Wasn't she holding the gun, though? Like, it would... He'd have to be pretty dumb to do this to a person with a gun. They're both 
made for each other. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm wondering if this is how it actually all played out. Yeah, this is what true. according to Carol. But I also want to apologize that I've keep coughing. I took a sip of coffee and I think there was a little bit of a coffee bean ground <laughs> grind or whatever it's called that went down my throat and I cannot get it out. So I apologize for the sound effects. That might be what some people call TMI. <clears throat> so anyway, what happened next? <laughs> well, Bob drove them to a cheap motel, which freaked Carol out at first. He told her he wasn't going to hurt her and just wanted someone to talk to and spend the night with. She was nervous, but she went along with it. And so far, this sounds really sketch. <laughs> um, yeah, once he put his hands around her neck, I was kind of thinking that. <laughs> yeah. And he was actually being honest with her. He never made a move on her. He let her borrow a pair of his pajamas, and he was a gentleman to her. This is when Carol fell in love with the man. Huh. And if that's all it takes, <laughs> that's pretty interesting. Well, never underestimate Just, a good pair of jammies. I guess it is good to be in a really vulnerable situation with someone and not be assaulted by them. <laughs> like, I don't think there's actually an explanation for this, so don't try it. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. But here's the problem. Both of them were married. Mm. But Carol loved excitement and adventure. So sneaking around behind Mike's back and hooking up with another married man was an exhilarating challenge for her. Well, and he's being abusive to her, so he's driving her away. And, you know, I can see why she would be looking elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Carol would call Bob up at his work site, and then she'd get into his truck. Bob would make her lie on the floor to avoid being seen. And she thought that Bob was hiding these little meetings from his boss. Carol had surmised by the worksite that Bob worked for a wealthy businessman named Don Lewis. And that name rings a bell. Carol would often call the worksite and the secretary would answer. Carol would ask for Bob Martin and she'd get through to him. But one day, there was a different secretary working. And when Carol asked to talk to Bob, the secretary told her that she'd never heard of him. So, what? That would be confusing. Carol described the man that she had known as Bob as middle-aged, blonde with blue eyes. Then it clicked for the secretary, and she laughed and said, You're describing Don Lewis. Mm. Oh. Yeah. I'm glad that you didn't see that coming. I didn't. According to Carol, this is when she realized that she was hooking up with a millionaire. So Don Lewis, 43-year-old married man, father of four, is sneaking around with this 19-year-old girl. That's quite a gap. That's quite a gaping gap. <laughs> <laughs> In 1984, Carol actually started working for Don Lewis in his real estate business. Their affair continued for 10 years until 1991, when both Don and Carol left their spouses and married each other. So they got married the year I was born. Oh, I was still a blip. I was not born yet. <laughs> Didn't you call Burrito a blip earlier? I did. <laughs> <laughs> Within the year, Carol expressed her love of big cats, and Don helped her to buy a bobcat at an auction. She named her Wind Song. Oh, see... The, simul the similarities just keep <laughs> Stop, coming. say that. You would totally do this. Windsong was a bit of a nuisance. 
But I guess that's what you ask for when you invite a wild cat into your home. I love this. Winsong would sit on the top of the refrigerator and wait for Don to open it. Then she'd pounce on his head and try to get the food. <laughs> she even chased Carol's then 12-year-old daughter, Jamie, around the house and bullied the pet German Shepherd. Okay, first, German Shepherds are really tough. So if this cat can bully a German Shepherd, it's maybe not the best idea to have it in the house. Well, it is a bobcat. I mean, it's pretty. Well, yeah. Yeah. So Case in point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it was also chasing Jamie, the 12-year-old girl. Like, the, it, kids and large cats, probably not a great mix. <laughs> it's one thing if you want to put yourself in danger, but why would you expose your child to this dangerous animal? Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Uh, it was obvious that there were issues with having this wild cat in the house, but they weren't willing to let Winsong go. And we don't know why exactly, but I'm guessing Carol's passion for cats was just that important to her. Well, yeah. Win Song needed to live. Yeah, but again, she was a mother. Anyway. Don decided that a reasonable solution to this problem would be to get Win Song a playmate, obviously. <laughs> get another one. So they found a bobcat breeder. Located in Minnesota, of all places. Our home. When they arrived, Carol was shocked by the living conditions of the bobcats there. There were rows of cages filled with bobcat kittens. There were 56 kittens, and the cages were full of poop. The flies were so thick that Carol had to hold a handkerchief over her mouth, trying not to inhale any. Carol asked the breeder, Is there really a big market for bobcats as pets? And the breeder told her, Oh no, we're a fur farm. Oh. We just raise them until they're a year old, then slaughter them. Oof. This shocked and terrified Carol. She then saw a pile of dead cats in the corner of the room with their belly fur cut off, and that was the final straw. She burst into tears. Again, she sounds like you, Rosie. Okay, in this instance, I completely agree. Yeah. I mean, this is absolutely horrible. But again, like... I do have an issue with the fact that she's super concerned about the living conditions of these cats, but not so much with the living conditions of her daughter. Yes. But that's just a red flag, I see. Mm -hmm. But um, still, like, obviously, the fur farm with where they just skin them and throw them in the corner and it's keep disgusting. them in cages full of poop. Don't even get Horrible. me started. I mean,. If you haven't heard our fur farm episode, <laughs> Rosie shares her passion. What was that? Episode eighty nine? I don't remember. It's yeah, been a while. I think it was eighty nine. Oh yeah, I got real riled up there. Yeah. So oof. Well when Don saw Carol in tears about all this the whole situation, he asked the breeder, How much for every cat here? It's really nice. And this led to the founding of Carol and Don's Wildlife Rescue in 1992. They bought up 67 acres of land in Tampa, Florida, and started a bed and breakfast style experience called Wildlife on Easy Street, which honestly sounds pretty awesome. It does. Guests could have a cat spend the night with them in their cabin. What? I mean, on, on the surface, sounds like a great time. Mm-hmm. But again, we always know what's behind the, you know, when you can take a picture with a tiger, right. cub, mm -hmm. you know, 
it's not great for the cats. But looking back, Carol sees this as a misguided attempt to aid in wildlife preservation. Mm-hmm. So she wanted to do better more recently. But this is what they started with. So they eventually renamed it to Big Cat Rescue. And in 1995, it became a nonprofit organization. They were determined to do better in raising these cats and caring for them. As they grew their rescue, they were very skeptical of the people they hired, combing to find the best ones and making sure they knew loyalty was very important. So now we're going to take a break to get a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of Voice of the Victim podcast is sponsored by Podcorn. Rosie and I are very passionate about the things we talk about on the show, but it takes a lot of time and energy to make. Sponsors help us be able to work less at our other jobs and spend more time making the show the best it can be. But we're just a couple of inexperienced kids and have no idea where to begin finding sponsors. Thankfully, the awesome people over at Podcorn have really helped us out with that. Podcorn is a really simple and easy to use platform. It's a marketplace that connects podcasters directly to amazing sponsorship opportunities like host read ads, interview segments, reviews, topical discussions, and more. And I love how easily we can learn about the business and whether it would be a good fit just by clicking a button, and then we can send them a proposal for a specific date. There's no middleman, so podcasters can choose what their specific rate is, while also making better quality ads because we can directly collaborate with the sponsors. Well, personally, I prefer host red ads because I don't like it when the ads change the tone of the podcast or just come in harsh and throw you off. And I really love that we're able to get in touch with the brands themselves and personalize the ads so they can flow naturally. You don't need to give up creative control or rights to your podcast to use Podcorn. And the people that work there are always willing to help and work with you to make the process painless. Seriously, they're really laid back and they let creators do what they feel is best for their audience while also securing securing funds before we start the ads, and making sure we're paid when we're done. The Marketplace mission of Podcorn is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when they monetize their hard work. And we know podcasters work hard. So if you're a podcaster of any size, click the link in our show notes to sign up to Podcorn and start browsing opportunities to fund your own sponsors. And now back to the show. This brings us up to the next big event. August 18th, 1997. Now this is the day that Don Lewis quote-unquote officially went missing. Carol Baskins reported him missing, saying that she hadn't heard from him since he left for Costa Rica. She said that in the days leading up to this, he had been loading his van for a trip he was planning down there. She said that he had a sex addiction, and every month he would fly commercially out of Miami down to Costa Rica to meet up with his mistresses. He owned a 200-acre park down there. Very interesting. Yeah, so to Carol, this was just another typical trip for Don. But this time, he wasn't responding to any of his family's calls. Two days later, on August 20th, 1997, Don Lewis's van was found at the Pilot Country Airport in Spring Hill, Florida. Which was 40 miles from the Cat Sanctuary. And it was not an international airport. This was an airport made for smaller craft. Don was known to be an amateur pilot and owned several airplanes. But according to Carol, his license to fly was expired. I remember hearing Carol say that he got his license taken away the day after he got it in the first place. (laughs) Really? And she also said that this didn't stop him from flying. 
So his van was found at this little private airport. But there was one problem that made this make no sense. The kind of aircraft that launches from this airport and that Don would have flown is not made for international travel. This is one of those little guys. So he would have had to stop for fuel at least four times on the way to Costa Rica. And, you know, that just didn't make much sense since he typically would fly out of Miami. So it's like, why is his van parked at this airport? Mm -hmm. You know? But there was another odd thing having to do with the van. The keys of the van were inside it, dropped on the floorboard. So Don drove to this airport and did fly his little plane to Costa Rica. Why would he leave his keys on the floor of his car? I mean, maybe he dropped them, but you'd think he'd notice the sound of keys falling and pick them up. Yeah. It just doesn't make much sense. Despite these strange circumstances, police were unable to find any other evidence about what had happened with the van. In an effort to find Don, police searched both the Big Cat Rescue property and the 200-acre park which Don owned in Costa Rica. But again, they found no signs of foul play. All they uncovered in Costa Rica was indications that Don had been cheating, as well as some signs that he was involved in an illegal business practice. Yikes. Yeah, so you think maybe he would want to disappear if he's involved in weird business practices. But the thing about that is... It's been almost 23 years, and still no one has ever seen him. So maybe he's just really good at disappearing? That's totally plausible. But then there's another really big factor. He hasn't spent any of his $5 million fortune or used any of his credit cards since his disappearance. So Hmm. keep that in mind. Investigators found that two of his ocelots had recently been shipped out but they were unable to find their location. And I don't know if this really connects to the rest of the story at all, but if he was involved in illegal practices, this could have been an under-the-table sale or something. And for those of you that don't know what an ocelot is, they're cute little kitties. Yeah, it's a small, wild native uh, cat. What? (laughs) Small, wild cat native to the southwestern United States, Mexico, and Central and South America. Looks like a little mini leopard, kind of. Looks adorable. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the investigation didn't turn up anything useful. And after five days, it was over, and it became a cold case. Until 8.01 a.m. on March 30th, 2020. I mean, this was two weeks ago. A sheriff named Chad Cronister of, you guessed it, Hillsborough County, Florida, where Tampa happens to be, he posted on Twitter that he was reopening the cold case of Don Lewis. So he was inspired after the recent popularity of the show Tiger King and thought it would be a great time to ask for leads. So, now we're going to dive a little deeper into evidence that has come out since Not even necessarily new evidence, just clues that were glossed over in the initial investigation. According to Don Lewis's daughters and friends, he told them that things were not going so well with Carol, and that he planned to permanently move to Costa Rica by himself. In early 1997, 
he had started to transfer ownership of his properties in Florida to a company he owned in Costa Rica. Yeah. Yikes. So this is huge. Their marriage wasn't going so well. Apparently things were so bad that he didn't even feel safe around Carol. In July of 1997, he actually filed a restraining order against Carol, claiming Mm. that she had threatened to kill him. But somehow, it was rejected, and he continued living with her. But he had actually given an envelope to his personal assistant, Anne McQueen, with a copy of the restraining order in it. And he told her... You need to keep this, and if anything happens to me, you need to give this to the police. <laughs> wow. So the restraining order is kind of scary. Rosie, will you read it? Mm-hmm. It says, This is the second time Carol has threatened to kill me. I was away from our house. She gave two junk men permission to come on property and remove trucks and equipment that I had stored there that a man owed me $17,000 on. When I found out, the man that owned the equipment had to call the sheriff to make them stop. When I got back, me and Carol got in a big fuss. She ordered me out of the house or she would kill me. And if I came back, she would kill me. She has a H5 revolver and she took my 357 and hid it. I have owned the home and land 17 years. We have only lived there three years. I have a lot of equipment and animals and cats there. I have 132 exotic cats I take care of. So their sanctuary really took off. I mean, 132 cats. And his grammar is not that great. (laughs) But, well, I think he was kind of writing it in a hurry. But Carol seems to have had a bit of a problem with what she referred to as hoarding. I could see this. Yeah. Frustration with hoarding and trying to take stuff off the land. But she, according to Don, also was threatening to kill him, which is a little extreme for some hoarding Issues, you know. And according to Don's written statement, within this restraining order, he felt unsafe and threatened. So things were obviously rocky in their relationship. Apparently, Don had told Carol several times that he wanted a divorce, but she never thought he was serious. In Tiger King, his ex-wife Gladys told interviewers that Don had told her that Carol was one of the worst people he had ever met and that he was divorcing her. Don's daughter confirmed that he had said he was afraid of her. His ex-colleague, Wendell Williams, told the Tiger King interviewers that the last time he ever saw Don, he told Wendell that he was planning on telling Carol very soon that he wanted wanted a divorce. So that's at least four people that have corroborated accounts of Don's behavior before he disappeared. And this is one of the areas where the popular theory about Carol killing her husband originated but we want to play both sides fairly and it turns out that carol baskin has actually published a rebuttal to the things implied in the tiger king so we're going to try to be fair and present both sides and see where we land many of these people claimed don was increasingly afraid of carol but carol had some things to say about that so rosie will you read um The quotes from her post? Of course. Her rebuttal? In the few years preceding his disappearance, Don's behavior was gradually showing signs of mental deterioration. Originally, Don, from time to time, would buy vehicles or other equipment at auctions with a view to reselling them, 
although mostly he never got around to reselling them. But gradually, his hoarding of junk that he brought to the 40 acres the sanctuary now sits on increased and involved junk of no value. He deteriorated into dumpster diving and even got stuck in a dumpster and called me crying because he did not know where he was. Well, that's really sad if that's true. Yeah. Back then, Alzheimer's was not a commonly used word. I had not heard of it. Someone mentioned Alzheimer's to me, and I got Don to agree to set up an appointment with a specialist, Dr. Gold. Yeah, so at first she's really fixated on the hoarding aspect of it. But then, you know, it seems like she felt that he had some mental issues. So they set up this appointment with Dr. Gold, but Anne McQueen, according to Carol, Anne McQueen got involved. It says, Anne McQueen intervened and convinced him to see her psychiatrist, Dr. Blazini. Blazini. And remember, Anne McQueen was Don's um, personal assistant, basically. Right, that he gave the restraining order to. Yeah. He referred us to Dr. West in the same building who was not there, so Don saw Dr. Russell. He diagnosed Don with bipolar disorder and gave him a prescription to have an MRI at the St. Joseph's Hospital. I did not find the prescription until I was searching his bedside table, looking for clues to his disappearance. His behavior became increasingly strange. He started refusing to use the bathroom and defecating outside. He brought in a homeless man to stay in our house. I rescheduled an appointment for him to see the specialist, Dr. Gold, but he disappeared before the appointment date. Hmm. So this definitely introduces some interesting perspective to the situation. If what Carol is saying here is true, it could explain away some erratic behavior. But it does very much have an overtone that Don's assistant, Anne McQueen, was conspiring against Carol and Don. And it also kind of feels like Carol's trying to say, oh, Don was going crazy. I'm sure that's why he disappeared. You know? Something like that. Um, Carol also had some things to say about the credibility of Anne McQueen. And again, these are Carol's words, which is the majority of the quote-unquote evidence we have to work with. It's just words from a lot of different people. You know, it's hard to know who to believe or what to believe. But there are also some hard facts that we'll get to later and try to make some kind of sense of it. But... Rosie, what did Carol say about Don's assistant? Anne McQueen is referred to as Don's trusted assistant. A few months before his disappearance, we caught her embezzling roughly $600,000 in properties by buying them with our funds and putting them in her name. A court ordered her to return them. Not the best sign of integrity, credibility, someone to believe. I like the voice you're doing for Carol. It's very... Spot on. Keep doing that. So this is interesting to me because the police did claim to find evidence in Costa Rica of Don having some shady business practices. So how do we know that he didn't put Anne up to this, the embezzling money, you know? But either way, Carol's defense of what Anne has to say seems more like a character assassination than counter evidence. Carol isn't coming out and saying that Don didn't write that restraining order or that Anne faked it. Instead, she's just trying to destroy Anne's character. But there's more about that. Let's dive deeper 
She also talked about Wendell Williams, the man who said the last time he ever talked to Don, Don was telling him that he was going to tell Carol about the plans to divorce. So what does Carol say about Wendell? We made a loan to Wendell when he purchased the 40 acres that became the sanctuary. He dug out dirt to sell for construction, digging an 18-acre, 30-foot deep hole without our knowing. He then began operating the hole as an illegal dump site for construction debris. The hole filled up with water when he hit a spring. He stopped making payments. We foreclosed on him and ended up with the property. Wendell is a very good con man, and Don continued to deal with him despite this. During the time when Don was declining mentally, I repeatedly observed Wendell cheating Don. Don liked to carry a lot of cash. I remember Wendell telling Don, Hey, remember that two grand you owe me? And saw Don peeled off $2,000 and gave it to him. A few hours later, I saw Wendell do it again. And because of Don's dementia, Don peeled off $2,000 again and gave it to Wendell. I confronted Wendell about it. After that, Wendell did everything he could to create a rift between me and Don. There were many, much larger transactions where Wendell was scamming Don. He was convincing Don he was selling Don real estate properties by handing him paper he said were deeds, but they were not. Don, who could not read, believed him and would give him cash and checks for amounts in excess of $60,000, thinking that he was purchasing property. Okay. So, apparently, according to Carol, Don couldn't read. I don't know about all that, but again, feels like she's trying to assassinate Wendell's character now. And, I mean, this is interesting. It's really scummy and sad if it's true. And it did make me wonder, maybe there's another possibility of how Don may have disappeared? Like, if what Carol's saying is true, what if Don caught on to what Wendell was doing and Wendell and Anne were in on it together and Don wanted to expose them after he caught on, you know? that's It's total speculation, but there's so little to work with here. We gotta look at every possibility. But it's really complicated. You know how it is dealing with family drama? Oh, it can I be do. so complicated and every side can have certain things they're right about, certain things they're wrong about. It's just messy, complicated, and I feel like this whole case is that way. So even if he was a scummy businessman, it doesn't mean he was lying about what happened. But, I mean, he could have had motive. But, again, that's very much speculation. And it's one thing if it were just one person saying these things about Don, but there are so many, including his own daughters and ex-wife. And Carol had stuff to say about them as well. But... I guess my point is that a lot of people were kind of on the same page. Like, Don was scared of Carol. Before we get into that, what does Carol have to say about Don's ex-wife and daughters? This is a long one. She says, I feel for Gladys because every woman in Don's orbit adored him. He could make you feel like you were the only woman in the world, the only one who understood him, the only one he ever really loved. In the series, Gladys makes it sound like she told Don their marriage was over when she found out about me. Don had been unfaithful to her for years, and it was well known by her and generally. In the 1998 Dateline um, People magazine article, Anne McQueen said she was probably the only woman he didn't try to have sex with. 
Even Don's daughters refer in the series to Don's condition as being a sexual, sexaholic. When Gladys demanded a divorce in 1989, there was a man at her church she wanted to marry. So she told Don that if he would give her a quick divorce, she would settle for $1 million. She and the daughters worked with Don to pick properties that she would get along with some cash, cars, jewelry, and coins. I was told that Don's oldest daughter, Donna Petis, subsequently managed to lose all of it in the stock market in the years that followed. Again, it feels like she's trying to destroy their character when, like, at this time that Gladys demanded a divorce, don't forget that you were cheating with Don on Gladys and Mike. So uh, I think it's fair for Gladys to get some money mm-hmm. when she divorces her millionaire husband. But anyway, she continues. In 1996, despite their prior divorce settlement agreement, Gladys, who freely accuses me of being greedy, filed a suit claiming she was entitled to more. Cross versus You don't have to re- read the case number. <laughs> okay. The daughters, Donna and Linda, testified on behalf of Gladys. Don expected Gail and Ann McQueen to testify on his behalf. Instead, they testified for Gladys. At that time, Don told me to eliminate them as beneficiaries of the PSRL Trust. I did not do so because I felt they were family and over time he would change his mind. To the best of my knowledge, he never spoke to any of them again. After Don disappeared... There were years of my having to manage the properties under a conservatorship demanded by Gladys and the daughters. The numerous attorneys they involved, all being paid out of the estate, reduced the assets significantly. Ultimately, the assets in the PRSL trust that had the daughters as beneficiaries went to them. Those assets were worth about $1 million. The assets in the other trust, worth about $2 million by then, came to me. The claim the girls made in the series that I picked the assets they got and that they were bad assets is nonsense. They got the assets from the trust that they were beneficiaries of, worth $1 million. Gladys and her daughters had strong, selfish motivations to lie and make implications about the meat grinder and Don being buried on the property 23 years ago that have absolutely no basis in fact whatsoever. And they continued to do so in the series. <sighs> okay. Thank you for reading that. That was not easy to get through. But it does, again, show the focus that Carol has. I mean, what if everything she's saying here is true? It could be. But what does it have to do with the accusations? Mm-hmm. You know, just because, you know, these people, I'm sorry. Rosie hates that I keep saying, you know, but I can't help it. That's just the way that I communicate. But, you know, divorces are always messy. What? You said it again. I did. When you started your sentence. I did not. Okay. I'm sorry, guys. But again, the real issue here is being ignored about Don's disappearance. Like, it's emotional for everyone involved and... We really have no right to comment on how this was all handled because this is a family deal. You know, this whole <laughs> settlement with the the money and everything. But Carol's claiming that this is motive for the daughters to lie. So that's interesting. But 
she also downplays the wealth that Don had in her rebuttal. So, Rosie, I, I know it's some thick quotes, but you ready to read this part mm-hmm. about Don's wealth? Mm-hmm. Everyone repeats the lie that Don was a millionaire when I met him. He had a business cutting the axles off of trailers pulled by tractors and selling the boxes as storage and the axles back Great Dane. If you search the property records, you will find he only owned two real estate properties at the time. He may well have been worth six figures and, coming from a very modest background, would have felt he was rich. No one, including Anne McQueen, who had access to his books, has ever provided any bank records or other evidence that he had more than that. One day at the bank, he overheard a bank officer say that he had a $20,000 loan in default that he would be glad to sell for $2,000. He got the information and because he could not read beyond a first grade level, asked me to look into it. In brief, we bought the loan, foreclosed, and sold the property for a substantial profit. So, yeah, okay, here's where it says it. Before she said he couldn't read, and now she says he could not read, but be on a first grade level. So, little discrepancy there, but continue. This is what got us into the real estate business. We started buying defaulted loans from banks and going to the tax deed sales. This was before this became a popular business. There were few people doing it. With me doing the research, negotiations, and title clearing on the properties we built to this portfolio of properties to rent or resell, that was worth around $5 million at the time of his disappearance. Hmm. We kept the properties in trusts. During the roughly 10 years we were partners, before his divorce and our marriage, there were properties we bought together and some Don bought on his own or with another woman, Pam. When we married... I put all of those I had not worked on into one trust. The ones from our joint efforts were kept in a separate trust. The trust holding the properties I was not involved in was set up with his children as beneficiaries if he passed and called the PRSL Land Trust. I was the beneficiary of the trust holding the properties I was involved in. Anyone can search his name in the public records from 1950 to 1997 to see this is true. Again, this provides an interesting insight into... Who's Pam? The legit... <laughs> well, I think that might have been one of his mistresses. But again, that's common knowledge. Get and, out of here, Pam. You know, Carol was apparently on board with him having mistresses. But it doesn't address <laughs> the disappearance, you know. It explains the logistics of the finances. A lot but of money talk. Yeah, it it just doesn't, to me, dispute any of the evidence that we're about to talk about. The question isn't who earned the millions of dollars of assets. And she herself admits that the assets she was the beneficiary of were joint assets, meaning that she would have to share them with Don. So I don't see how this refutes money being her motive mm-hmm. if she made him disappear. Right. Also, if he was about to divorce her, she would be losing her claim to a substantial amount of that money. You know? 
<laughs> if Don was really planning on picking up and moving down to Costa Rica with his other girlfriend, maybe that's Pam, who knows, and taking the sanctuary and everything else away from Carol, this would have been devastating to Carol and her dreams and passions. So this is a huge motive. She would be eliminating the person that stands between her and continuing to live her dream and be wealthy. The cats were literally her identity, and Don was possibly threatening to take that all away from her. But, to be fair, one last thing from Carol. Carol did make one point that actually stuck out to me as odd about that envelope with the restraining order. So, Rosie, one last time, will you read Carol? Oh, I will. Anne claims Don told her to give the document to the police if anything happened to him. If someone tells you that and the person disappears two months later, do you forget that, as Anne claims? No, you remember and give it to the police immediately. But Anne did not tell the police or me about it until September 9th, 1997, when she claims to have suddenly remembered just in time to spring it on me in the court hearing with Judge Sexton as a way to try and have herself appointed as conserv conservator of our estate. Anne is an embezzler and a liar, and her claim that Don told her, if anything happens to me, give it to the police, and she simply forgot that until the hearing three weeks later is simply not credible. Later, when Anne was forced to return the embezzled properties at the end of the negotiations with the matter now closed, she opened up and told me that she knew all along that the only reason Don applied for the restraining order was to stop me from removing the junk. <laughs> okay. So oh, wow. that's that's pretty big, if true. Like, it's a good point. So, it is a good point. You know, I went into this thinking Carol was 100% guilty, as most people do. But this is actually a really good point. Why would it take Anne so long to remember this envelope? I mean... The rest she says here is, again, just Carol's words, but the point she made is irrefutable, you know? It does introduce some doubt about the legitimacy of the restraining order and whether Don really did tell Anne to share it if anything happens to him or if it was even, you know, if he really did feel threatened or if he was just trying to get her to stop throwing his stuff away. But... Even if that's true, even if he made up the restraining order, again, the evidence we're going to get into, it kind of tells a story that, you know. <laughs> oh, I know. Well, what, why are we waiting? Let's get into it. <laughs> now we're going to get into some of the other evidence that still makes me suspicious of Carol. The day Don was reported missing... Carol says she had driven to a store named Albertson's to pick up some milk byproduct for the Tigers when her car broke down. The police drove by and saw her truck on the side of the road. The officer that showed up just happened to be her brother, accompanied by another deputy. The other deputy ended up giving her a ride home. So, a few odd things about this. It was three in the morning when Carol was out to buy milk for the cats. In the store Albertsons, it's a chain, and on average, they typically close at 9 p.m. So there's no doubt that this is extremely odd behavior because it doesn't make any sense. What are the odds 
that this strange thing would happen on the same day Don was reported missing, you know? Why would she be out at 3 a.m. to buy milk at a store that's not open? And why would the second deputy give Carol a ride home instead of her brother, you know? (laughs) Was there something in Carol's car that her brother was trying to help her conceal? Who knows? You know. But there's more. You know. (laughs) Anyway. Later that day, Carol called to report her husband missing, and he was never seen again. But this was Monday. It turns out that according to Anne McQueen, she had been trying to call Don all day Saturday and Sunday, but he never answered her. She needed some info on a business deal they were working on, but she wasn't able to reach Don for three days. Finally, she called Carol on Monday, and Carol said she hadn't heard from Don either. Anne says that Carol asked her, Do you think I should call the police? And Anne was like, Do you think? Like, duh. You know? So that's when she finally (laughs) reported him missing. The same day she had been shuttled home by a deputy who happened to be riding with her brother after she broke down. After heading to buy tiger milk at 3 a.m. at a (laughs) store that closes at 9 p.m. And this is one of the biggest sticking points with me that Carol had something to do with this. I mean, isn't that weird? Like, there's so many weird coincidences right here. Someone from the police department that was working around this time that Don went missing said some stuff that makes this even more suspicious. So, Rosie, you want to talk about that? Mm Mm-hmm. According to John Marsicano, the lead homicide detective at the time, her brother had asked them to tread lightly when they started to suspect foul play in Don's disappearance, because Carol was his sister. And obviously she was the prime suspect, because spouse of the missing person. But in Tiger King, Carol claims she never really knew her brother, because he was only nine when she ran away from home. But she still lived with him for nine years. Well, that's interesting. So to me, this really comes across as a defensive introduction of doubt, you know, downplaying the relationship to Mm -hmm. imply that he wouldn't have tried to help her. Well, even if that, I mean, that's true, but she can still have a close relationship with him. Yeah, and she's still his sister, and he's still at the working at the police department that's Mm -hmm. investigating her, and he's the one that came across her when she was broke down at 3 a.m., when she was out buying tiger milk. And, you know, he really <laughs> had an opportunity here mm-hmm. to help her. And I feel like you're just bullying me now with the whole, you know, thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just giggling. <laughs> so anyway, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll go on. We already talked about the van they found a few days later, parked at the private airport with the keys inside. Even though he wouldn't be able to fly one of his little planes down to Costa Rica, And he'd bought a commercial ticket out of Miami. Yeah, so he had purchased a ticket on a commercial airline from Miami to Costa Rica. So, again, why would his van be there? Clearly, someone else parked his van there. So was it Carol? Was it her brother? Or if Carol is actually innocent, was it Wendell or Anne McQueen? Or there's another possible suspect we'll talk about at the end, but there's just so many questions. Carol told the media back in 1997 that the last thing Don ever said to her was to, quote, 
be sure and get the Costa Rica truck ready because he was leaving early, early, early in the morning for Miami. So this was in 1997. But more recently, in the Tiger King interviews, she said something a little different. The last thing he said to me was that he needed me to have Kenny get a truck ready because he was going early, early, early the next day to Costa Rica. So, sounds really similar when you just, like, gloss over it. But I think it's worth thinking about the little differences between what she said in 97 and what she said more recently. If someone you love disappears like this, I would just imagine that you replay the last words they said to you over and over in your head, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm sure some of the minor wording may change over time, but not the actual meaning of what was said. You know, there's a difference between small words changing and the actual meaning of what you're saying changing. In 97, she said Don asked her to get the truck ready and that he was going to Miami. But more recently, she said that he asked her to have Kenny get the truck ready. Kenny being kind of Don's right-hand man, worked at the sanctuary for them. So she said this more recently, that he asked her to have Kenny get the truck ready, and that he was leaving for Costa Rica. Also, she included an eye roll when she quoted the early, early, early part. She So she didn't just change the wording a bit. She changed the actual meaning. Now, I get that Miami is where he was flying out of to Costa Rica, you know, so that's more understandable. But she's claiming to be quoting the last thing Don, her loved one, her husband, mm-hmm. ever said to her. Wouldn't it be based on an exact quote that he actually said and not changing, you know? Mm-hmm. Also, the early, early, early part seems to me to be rehearsed because she rolled her eyes while she was saying it in Tiger King. Like, she was just so sick of repeating it. Just to fill in the gaps, Kenny Farr was Don's right-hand man, and Don and Carol loved him like a son. He worked at the sanctuary for them. That's who Kenny was, who would have been helping get the van ready. But I think the bottom line is here, we really don't know what happened. And I don't know if we ever will unless there's a confession. You know, it's just there's just so much to it. So many people saying different things. Maybe the police have more evidence that we don't know about yet. Maybe this new investigation will lead to something. But we can't say anything absolutely for sure. But to me... It feels like Carol's rebuttal tries so hard to be credible and legitimate by citing sources that prove what she's saying is right, but what she's saying doesn't actually address or refute the accusations. All the other evidence we have just seems way too weird, too you know, damning to Carol to ignore. Who goes out to buy milk for their cats at 3 a.m. to a place that closes at 9 p.m.? Why would the police officer that ran into her that night happen to be her brother? And that one officer said that he he told the department, this is my sister, go easy on her. Like, no matter what happened, there was definitely nepotism involved in the investigation. And now, 23 years later, Carol probably feels a lot more confident, you know, My big thing is they claim to have searched that 40-acre property. 
But the investigation, according to what I found, only lasted from five days to a couple weeks max. There's no way in heck they could have swept through every square foot of that 40 acres in five days. Like, and I'm pretty sure it was like 67 acres when they bought it, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. 40 acres, 67 acres, doesn't matter. Still way too much to sweep within a couple of weeks. Um, the lead homicide detective said they did aerial searches, but how is that supposed to spot human remains? Right. So is that literally the only search they did of her property? Like, what can you see from the air? Unless they literally called in hundreds of volunteers, especially with having all those tigers. Remember, there were a few days between when Don's daughter, or when Don's assistant last heard from him, and when Carol reported him missing. So if he was fed to the tigers, like Joe Exotic speculated, people make the argument that there would have been bones. But who's to say she didn't collect the bones after the tigers cleaned them up and buried them somewhere on her property? Yeah, I just think the initial investigation could have been much more thorough because Carol implies that the police did their due diligence searching her property when she had 40 acres. I mean, what if she buried the bones in a tiger enclosure, which already has missing ground covering? You know, you wouldn't notice someone had been digging there. And then just tamped it down a bit and let the tigers back into the enclosure so the investigators wouldn't want to go in there and look for evidence of foul play because there's a giant cat in there. She just had so many options. And that put together with the other weird circumstances. And she claims it would have been impossible for her. She also has an open invitation to anyone that wants to search her septic tank because that's another theory that Joe Exotic put forth. But what investigator would want to do that? You know, um, but again, I got to recommend Derek Van Shake. I mean, his video about this talking about Don Lewis and Carol was very interesting. He broke down her body language in an inter interview that she did after she dis after he disappeared when she was acting as if she was grieving and upset. But her eyes told the different story. If you watch Lie to Me. You know how much the eyes say about someone's true feelings. Mm -hmm. So it's worth looking into. Another thing is that she has denied taking a polygraph test. Now, we know they're not very reliable for finding the truth, but they do at least help a person show willingness to cooperate with an investigation. And Carol denied, denied it, saying that her attorney told her it wouldn't vindicate her of anything. But if you were wrongfully accused of killing a loved one, wouldn't you do everything you can to aid the investigation and get to the truth? Right. And, you know, get the spotlight taken off yourself? Mm hmm Unless you really don't want to get to the truth. Yeah, it's a really good point. But there is one other interesting aspect that came out recently. Do you want to mm -hmm. get into that? One more thing we want to share is something we found on bcrwatch.com. They're a site aimed at exposing the lies of Big Cat Rescue, Carol Baskin's sanctuary. So there's some slight bias here. 
obviously, if it's from a site that's aimed at exposing the lies of Carol Baskins, but they say that a woman named Patricia, or Trish Payne on Twitter, or wherever she reached out, they say that she had reached out to them back in November of 2018, long before the story was hugely popular. So, this is interesting. Trish told them she was the ex-wife of Kenny Farr, Don Lewis's right-hand man, and the man who Carol refers to as like a son within her rebuttal that we referenced earlier. In the documentary, Kenny says that the last thing Don ever said to him was, if I pull this off, it'll be one of the slickest things I've ever done. Kenny says he didn't know what Don was talking about, but he felt like there was more Don wasn't telling him. Yeah, so it seems like Kenny is implying that Don may have been planning to disappear, you know, planning this big escape. And if he pulls this off, it'll be the slickest thing he's ever done. But let's share what Trish told, um, what Trish said. I mean, this woman who said she's Kenny's ex-wife, what did she say? She said, I was married to Kenny Farr, who worked for Don Lewis. I can 100% confirm that on August 17, 1997, Kenny came home that Sunday night in Don's van with all of Don's guns that Carol had gave him, gave to him, about 50 or more. And in the months going forward, Carol had transferred many properties into Kenny's name as well. It's public record. Anybody can look at it. But the guns 100% were given to Kenny before Don supposedly disappeared the next day, Monday, August 18th. So that's interesting. And on Carol's rebuttal, she herself admits that she gave Kenny the guns, but she claims it was a long time after Don's disappearance. But Trish here alleges it was the day before. So there's another interesting bit of hearsay to add to this cluster of crazy circumstances, but it does imply that maybe Kenny had something to do with the disappearance and may have been in on it with Carol, you know? Because hmm. this was the day, the day he came home with these guns, according to Trish, was the day of the night <laughs> that um, Carol was out buying cat milk and broke down. So put that all together. Oof. It's a lot of strange circumstances happening in one weekend. But we can't forget the real big issue here. A man went missing. People that loved him lost their father or a friend. And there is only one truth out there. And hopefully, if enough people are looking for it, it'll be found. Yeah. And along with that, Carol does have an open invitation to anyone who's willing to pay to replace her septic tank, um, you know, is welcome to come dig it up and search it. So the bottom line is we don't know what happened, but there are a lot of theories about what happened. Definitely. So this week on Patreon, since we can't fit this all in one episode because it's already so long, we're going to be reading through some fan theories uh, of fans of Tiger King and discussing our thoughts on them over at the $2 level on Patreon. So go check that out if you're interested. It's going to be good. Yeah, should be fascinating. But... Wow. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Oh, I'm so relieved to have gotten through that because yes. such an intense, intense, very intense situation. Like, 
What do you think, Rosie? Do you have any ideas of what actually happened? I don't know. I think anything is possible. Yeah, our goal here wasn't to set up a narrative about what happened. It was just to lay out everything we know and comment on it along the way because we don't know what actually happened. I mean, a lot of people are out there saying that she absolutely killed Don, but we're not going to make that accusation if there's not 100% proof of it. But there are some very weird circumstances like we've talked about. Mm -hmm. So if you have solved the case, be sure to let that sheriff know. Chronister, he would be very happy to solve this case, I think. <laughs> and if you haven't watched Tiger King yet, what are you waiting for? Yeah, really. Unless you don't have Netflix, then that's another thing. But and Then borrow a friend's password. Yeah. <laughs> we all do it. Well, we have our own account. But anyway, do we have any cat news, speaking of cats? Mm, no, they're kind of wondering what's happening with the with us putting stuff in boxes. But. Oh, yeah. Our house is very torn up right now. It is. It's Lots super of stuff frustrating. I'm sorry that I say you know after everything, and I'm a little worried now that you brought <laughs> it up. It'll start annoying our listeners, too. Well, maybe it's something you can work on. But it's the way I talk. Like, it's the way I make sure that you're on the same page and following what I'm saying. Well, maybe it's something you can work on. It's something that one of my favorite South African friends does a lot. Says you know? That's mm-hmm. a Minnesotan thing. Well, I hear a lot from <laughs> someone from South Africa that I'm friends with. So <laughs> That's been in Minnesota for quite a long time. Anyway, anyway, this has been a long episode. We're both very exhausted from moving large furniture up from our basement. So we're a little wonky. <sighs> but yeah. thank you for sticking with us through this whole menagerie thank you. of hearsay and facts. Spitting facts. Yeah. So, if this is your first time here and you're still listening, please subscribe to us. You can follow us on Instagram at VOV Podcast and Twitter at VOV Pod. Email us at VOV Podcast at gmail.com. And, oof, anything else? I don't think so. Oh, yeah. We have P.O. Box 1425, right? In Hudson, Wisconsin, 54016. So, if you feel like sending us anything, we should probably check that someday. Definitely. We haven't done that in a long time. It's at the office where I used to work. I should call them and be like, if we get anything, text us. (laughs) If you do send us something, let us know so we know to go check it. How about that? All right. We hope you're all doing okay. We know it's still, we're still going through this crazy time. Again, the invitation's open. If you're personally affected by difficult circumstances during this time definitely reach out to us and let us know we'd like to put together an episode in the future just sharing different little stories from our listeners about how this has affected them now we've had a few listeners reach out to us and share their circumstances and it sucks man it sucks for a lot of people and this whole thing especially financially for people who have jobs that are considered non-essential by whatever algorithm they're using, you know. It's just really sad for those people, and hopefully everyone's able to stay on their feet. But, yeah, I think that's about it. You ready to wrap this up, Rosie? Mm-hmm. All right. A lot of talking. My voice is tired. All right, ready to go record that Patreon episode? <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you next. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.